This is GSAP Conversations from the Graduate School of Architecture, Planning and Preservation at Columbia University in New York City. I'm Dina Malandraus. Thanks for listening. Hello, my name is Tim Batilina. I'm a third year Masters of Architecture student at Columbia GSAP. And I'll be speaking today with Antonia Chavati following his fifth annual Detlef Martins lecture on the histories of modernity at the school on March 25, 2019. Antonia Chavati is a GSAP faculty member, historian, cartographer, and architect. He's also author of the award-winning book, Ganges Water Machine, Designing New India's Ancient River, the first environmental and urban history of the world's most densely populated river basin. So, Anthony, thank you for speaking with me today. Um, It's great to be with you. <laughs> I would like to start first with maybe a more broad question about your practice. So, your background is in architecture, yet you have managed to combine and collaborate within several disciplines, including history, geography, sociology, politics, etc. So, could you talk a bit about how you approach design problems within your practice, somatic collaborative, and where you see your position within the architectural field? Sure, that's a, that's a great question, but also a very large one. Yeah. I would say that the, the way that we approach projects at uh, Somatic is really kind of a, taking a transcalar approach to things. So we really look at the different scales of the architectural, urban, regional project that we're doing. And we also certainly look at the different scales and materialities of those politics, cultures, more generally. So whether it's work that I've been doing in India for over a decade now on the Ganges River Basin, or the work that Felipe, my partner in the office, has been doing in Brazil and in the larger South American context, we take very much an approach that always tries to cut almost like a cross-section through the different scales and materialities of the areas that we work. And I would say something that's quite intrinsic to both of our practices, both mine and Felipe's, is really the way in which we embed ourselves in the projects that we do. So the work I've been doing in India has been going on now for almost uh, 15 years, I think. And uh, certainly Felipe's work in South America has been going on for a long time. So there's also a real investment in terms of time and, and energy that we put into mm -hmm. these areas. So trying to really immerse, immerse ourselves in the landscape. So in the introduction to your lecture on Monday by Barry Bergdahl, uh, he called you an architect that builds with words. Um, but yet your work is highly visual as well, um, especially as you mentioned in your book, Ganges Water Machine. So maybe could you talk a bit about your approach to visual representation and what is your drawing process and decision making? And who do you have in mind as the audience when you make these maps and visual materials? So that, that was a very kind uh, introduction that Barry made about building um, you know, images out of words. And uh, I really try to move, I would say, like a sinusoidal way between writing about objects and, and environments and visualizing them. So. A lot of the work that I do uh, requires me to do quite a bit of field work, like walking the Ganges, or in the case of the work um, in the next book I'm working on, visiting a lot of schools and villages that I study, but also doing a lot of archival research as well, so reading through texts and uh, looking at historical images. And I would say in the context of especially the Ganges water machine is that 
What drew me to studying the, the Ganga or the Ganges River Basin was that here was the world's most densely populated river basin, agri agriculturally productive, monsoonal, and yet everything that I could find about it, there was nothing that visualized the spatiality or temporality of how people live in such an incredibly dense and dynamic environment. So I wrote a Fulbright proposal to say, give me a year and I'll go and I'll develop a new way of visualizing the, the rhythms of the monsoons and how they shape uh, land, soil, uh, water, and uh, cities more generally. And uh, the work that I do then is really trying to make almost a kind of uh, graphic biography of, of, these, of these regions and these areas. So trying to really pair image and word. And in the Ganges water machine, it's always funny because for historians, they say, wow, there are so many images here. And then for architects, they say there are so many words here. Because, mm -hmm. uh, you know, there's several thousand images in the book and well over 90,000 words in it as well. So I'm always trying to kind of couple what I see with how do you describe and narrate both empirically but also theoretically mm -hmm. more generally in the work that I do. And so Ganges Water Machine in that way was very much uh, an experiment in, in uh, how do you narrate such a vast territory from the scale of soil structures all the way up to uh, a larger kind of regional and even celestial scale. So there are certain moments where words and numbers fail to really capture that mm -hmm. dynamism. But I think you also want to be able to pair the images that you make with words because so many people, that's not the way they enter the space of trying to understand a place like the Ganges. It's through words. So it's always a, it's always a kind of tricky situation or dance that one has to perform. Mm -hmm. But it's something that certainly uh, always excites me about the work I've done on the Ganges and now working on the history of village India more mm -hmm. generally. I guess that comes also to my next question, which is so what actually, if there was any kind of recent development on the Ganges water machine or whether you received any feedback also from some authorities in India. And I guess that also taps back to the question of like architects. I think we are many times accused of being abstract or like representing for ourselves. So maybe... Could you talk also a bit about that, how when you were making these maps, new maps, like how to make them legible maybe for our broader audience or who was actually the audience that you were interested in with your book? So one of the things that I, I've done along with the book is do uh, an exhibition that's mm -hmm. traveled Traveling across India, India and uh, it's been, you know, in various biennials and is right now portions of it are at the uh, Milan Triennale uh, that Paolo Antonelli has mm -hmm. curated. And when I do these exhibitions in India uh, and elsewhere, these exhibitions, they're part exhibition, but also part performance. So one of the things that I do is that because I had no maps in order to visualize this landscape in India, I had to make my own instruments and prosthetics. Mm -hmm. So I recreate the practices of how I went about mapping this area and visualizing it using things as everyday as packaging tape and uh, socks in order to map the soils and other cultural detritus that's left by people living along the banks and in the larger wa uh, watershed of the Ganges. So it's very much a more immersive environment that I try to create. And I, I do these both in kind of galleries, but also science museums and museums more generally, because I think my training as both an architect and geographer, but also as a historian of science, is where I'm able to bring all of those things together in the form of an exhibition and certainly in the book. And the reception, I have to say, by and large, has always been extremely positive. And because I you know, walked so much of the river and boated it, I also 
develop very kind of close and long-standing now relationships with people outside of the big cities of Delhi and Kanpur and Patna to much smaller cities and towns as well. And so I keep in touch with many of my friends and colleagues mm -hmm. there. So it's about as much a kind of trying to put this in front of, say, major policymakers and the government, mm -hmm. but it also has to do with how do you do outreach at a more kind of interpersonal scale in areas that maybe are not oftentimes receiving the attention that, say, museums and, uh, and galleries receive in a mm -hmm. place like Delhi or in Bombay. So since your book is basically the first comprehensive mapping of Ganges in more than half a century, right? I couldn't stop thinking about India's colonial past and also this imperial obsession actually of the scientific quantification of mapping and the way the British actually approached this in India. So could you talk maybe a bit about how you approached it this time or actually what was important for you in terms of mapping? So what was important for you to represent and to highlight instead of just like some kind of empirical mapping? So one of the things that I, I write about in the book and that I show in the, in the exhibitions are the ways in which the history of cartography has really been one of how do you flatten spaces. So mm -hmm. making them very 2D, the way that rivers are drawn like plumbing as opposed to uh, drawing a larger watershed and the kind of softness of those edges and their incredible variety and variation. So the, the, the drawings that I do... They're less like, if you had to put them in fashion terms, they're less couture and they're more ready to wear. So, you know, you gain a few pounds, lose a few pounds, they still fit, so they stretch, as opposed to something that's incredibly meticulous and, and tight that the moment you've worn it, you can't really wear it again, like mm -hmm. a wedding gown. So the drawings that I make, they're very much more about how do you include the temporality of these spaces, but they also look at just how subjective measure is. So in making um, machines and prosthetics to where that use, say, packaging tape, it's also very much using kind of the wrong thing for the right purpose. And I think it also opens up a dialogue about the fact that these things that we take for granted about what constitutes measure, there's many different ways to measure. So my drawings really are meant to be a kind of set of base maps that, again, are more ready to wear as opposed to couture, but also so that other people can look at them and hallucinate upon what could happen in these areas. So it's not that I then both kind of map these areas out and visualize them and narrate them, but then also provide the answer. That's not so much mm -hmm. what I saw my purpose was, but instead, how do you provide a set of images and narratives so that we can have a discussion about these areas? And so there again, the, the, the drawings that I make in the way that I pair photography and cartography mm -hmm. together, and the different, again, kind of transcalar approach, I think creates a much thicker and I hope richer sensibility about the cultural landscape that exists here, the material one, and certainly also the politics of it, um, that a layering process has really happened since the time of the Mughal Empire through the British uh, East India Company and British Raj all the way to present day. And so I try to understand uh, how those layers fit on top of one another and where they intersect, where there are confluences, but also where there are conflicts mm -hmm. with them as well. So that's also why it took me so long to do this work, a decade as opposed to doing it in what I thought yeah. I could do in a year. Yeah, exactly. I think that comes to also my next question, and you touched a bit upon it. So basically, mapping the Ganges, it's like the biggest river basin in the world. So could you talk a bit about the scope of the project and like approaching it? 
I guess on your own or maybe not on your own like how did you approach this kind of territory with so much diversity and a different cultural landscape I guess to avoid certain kind of uh, simplification or generalization that could happen in this kind of scope of a project Well, so, uh, I mean, the Ganges Basin, it's not the largest basin, okay. but it is the most densely populated. populated. And, of course, the idea that one person could map that even in 10 years, it, there's quite a bit of hubris potentially with yeah. that. So my approach wasn't literally to try to map and cover everything. So instead, what I did was, I, of course, walked much of the length of it and, and, and boated across the river, but I used this technique that was first developed by Alexander von Humboldt called the transect mm -hmm. that he developed in the late 18th century when he was exploring South America, particularly the relationship between the Andes and the Pacific and Atlantic Ocean, and really starting to look at the world not from the point of view of a kind of, say, plan of top-down, mm -hmm. but really looking in section and elevation. So I, I used that technique that von Humboldt first used and then Patrick Geddes used with his valley section from ridgeline to shoreline that also is something that the landscape architect and theorist Ian McCarg used as mm -hmm. well. So what I do is I very rarely draw the river as, say, two parallel lines, mm -hmm. but instead I'm always cutting perpendicular to those two supposed banks of the river to show it as a much larger watershed. And that allows me to do several things. It allows me to show the, the movement of soils, how land builds up and then uh, gets washed away every year with the monsoons, how agriculture takes place along those edges within the larger basin, and certainly also permanent forms of urbanism, but also temporary forms. And lastly, it also allows me to then start to look at, well, what, is the, what are the different kind of social practices that exist mm -hmm. in this area? What are the politics of land tenure rights all the way from, say, a, a parcel of land to the different forms of housing stock that exist there? It really allows me to do this incredibly rich set of drawings and narrate the processes of change that happen there with the monsoons. So I use this idea of the transect, not so that I try to map everything, but really try to understand very kind of key parts mm -hmm. of it. And so where are there differences and similarities across the basin? It becomes an incredibly powerful tool for comparison in terms of the geometries of the, of the riverbed itself in relationship to the larger watershed, to then different forms of population settlement. So I really... Again, kind of cutting through it as opposed to just, you know, flying at 50,000 feet mm -hmm. above and looking down. And I, and I think that then also forced me to have to go out and really talk to people and learn from them and observe from them the practices that they develop to deal with water scarcity mm -hmm. and abundance in these areas. My next question concerns all of our generation. As a person who has received like a Western North American education, and has worked extensively in the so-called Global South. So how do you see your role as an architect, historian, planner, cartographer within these communities? What do you think we can contribute in this sense? You know, I remember when I first came to India in 2005, it was just shortly after Hurricane Katrina. Mm -hmm. And I was, you know, there to do this work uh, to better understand the, the temporality and choreography of the Ganges. And so people were saying, well, what are you doing here? Because it looks like, you know, New Orleans is underwater. Yeah. Shouldn't you be addressing those yeah. issues? And, 
And my answer was, well, I really want to learn from the way that people here in the Ganga Basin incorporate water and the monsoons more generally into their lives. So what are the different forms and states of water or waters? I think we have to talk about water in the plural, never in the, in the singular, and the kind of uh, gelatinous state that it takes with the monsoon. So I was really there to try to learn from that, and, and it's why I asked to be placed as a Fulbright Fellow, not in New Delhi or in Kolkata, but instead at Allahabad University, which is right in the center of the country. It's, um, it has a very old geography department, and so I was placed in geography there, and it really also forced me to learn Hindi and Urdu, which mm -hmm. became invaluable to the work that I do. And so I really developed much more of a sense of less of a kind of East versus West, mm -hmm. or Global North versus Global South. I mean, paying attention, of course, to those those dynamics, but as much trying to see where are there confluences that exist, both kind of literally and more uh, mm -hmm. metaphorically, and where are those conflicts as well that exist. So I think that there's, to me, there's so much that can be learned from the Ganga Basin as a kind of laboratory, not to import models from abroad of these kind of 19th century style yeah using turning water into plumbing, but instead, how do we learn from the soft infrastructures that already exist in these areas and how people incorporate waters into their lives that then I think could be exported to other parts of the world mm -hmm. from India because so much of the world is going to look like the Ganga Basin, especially mm -hmm. with climate disruption. Yeah. So I think there's so much that we can learn, and I don't mean that so much as extractive, but that I think there's lots of commonalities that parts of India face that many other parts of the world mm -hmm. are facing now and will continue to face increasingly. Mm -hmm. So I, I see it as an incredibly rich place of dialogue mm -hmm. with different parts of the, of the world and just also regionally within the longer, larger Ganga Basin itself because the level of diversity that exists there just even between the large state of Uttar Pradesh, its western edges versus its eastern edges that are along the heart, it's a very different, quite literally muddy versus drier area, the western side being quite dry compared to the eastern side of UP and, and certainly Bihar. So even there, there's incredible differences. So I really try to, to pay attention to those differences, but also try to find out and snuff out well, where there are commonalities. Yeah, that's extremely fascinating. And were you able to see, um, for example, this kind of like soft infrastructure that you're talking about, like applying it somewhere in the United States? like in uh, New Orleans or something? Is like something like that happening, this kind of exchange? Have you seen it? I wish there were things like okay. that happening, but I'm not, I'm not so aware of, of, of that happening, but it would be really... I mean, I think there are pre-Army Corps of Engineers reworking of New Orleans, especially in the 20th century, that are a little mm -hmm. bit more similar to the way that the Ganga Basin has these spaces where what today we would call flooding was allowed to happen that, that happens still today within the Ganga Basin that I think New Orleans and certainly larger portions of the Mississippi had. So I think that these these techniques did exist obviously in very different material and, and social and political ways, but I wish that there was more dialogue because I think there's a lot more certainly to be learned and dialogues to happen between these areas. But I, I have yet to witness anything okay. actually on the ground yeah. in the United States looking remotely like what I've witnessed. So I think I would also like to touch a bit upon your most recent project that you also gave a lecture on at uh, Columbia this past Monday. So maybe could you talk a bit more about the progression of your research, 
how it went from Ganges water basin and now exploring the village infrastructure in India and how this pedagogy of decentralization and the nation building actually was disseminated throughout India. So I, I came to being intrigued by uh, Indian villages, I would say really in three ways. The, the first way was that you know, in, in walking so much of the Ganga Basin, it's mm-hmm. sort of populated by villages. And two, that I kept seeing these things called tube wells in, in certain portions of villages or, or hand pumps. And these were the way in which many of these villages survived and even urban areas in terms of these decentralized technologies for drawing up groundwater. A tube well is literally kind of a, a usually a steel or plastic pipe, sometimes even bamboo that's bored down into the ground and then attached with a, a pump and engine to draw up water. And it's extremely useful when you're in an area that maybe isn't supplied by municipal water or you don't have mm-hmm. clean surface water to drink. And the third was that when I was then working on writing the history of the development of the Ganges River Basin, I kept encountering the history of villages in archives. So I became fascinated by this history, and the more and more I kind of dug into it, there was an incredibly rich history of architects and artists working with scientists to develop visual pedagogy for Mm -hmm. supposedly illiterate or non-literate peasants in India, and especially at the village level. So my talk that I gave here at Columbia, Building a Republic of Villages, was looking at how do you start to build a a post-colonial nation from the village level up when India had 580,000 villages at the time of its independence with no common language, religion, and 88% of the country said to not be literate. It became incredibly imperative at at a larger national level of how you integrate and develop maybe a kind of visual idiom that can allow for communication and certainly also for surveillance of of, uh, villages and developing propaganda for them. So the talk that I gave really looked at how the National Institute of Design, that was the first institute of design developed in the supposedly developing world at the time in 1961, was really a way of trying to bring the sciences, design, architecture together to face some of India's most pressing issues of the environment that say people like Charles and Raines had identified, mm-hmm. but also certainly that major figures like Prime Minister Nehru and Indira Gandhi were very invested with, and that industrialists were invested with as well, say with the Sarabhais and the Lalabhais and, and, and many others. So the talk that I gave really tried to uh, narrate the development of the National Institute of Design and developing this visual idiom for village mm-hmm. India. And it's, it's, very, it's definitely very different than the Ganges work that I, I did, which was both kind of historical and field work and bringing it all the way to the present, whereas this work on the history of village India is very much a kind of historical project that begins in the late 19th century and concludes in 1976. So I think it has a lot to tell us about the way we think about the environment, pedagogy, both in design, but teaching more generally. and. And what are the ways in which the human environment and the supposedly non-human environment kind of come together and, again, kind of those points of conflict and confluence that occur within them. So the talk really tried to focus on narrating that, that history. I think my last question is just about the future of your research. So what are your plans, research interests right now, what you're dealing with? So I'm currently trying to wrap up now this uh, book on building a republic of villages, uh, design and science during the Cold War. 
And when that book comes out, I also have funding from the National Science Foundation to do an exhibition of the objects that I study within the, the book. So I'm both kind of, you know, keeping one eye on the cat and the other on the fish in the frying pan, so okay. to speak. We're <laughs> developing both an exhibition and finishing the book okay. at the same time. So I'm doing that as well as I'm working on a small little book too on the history of the instruments that I made to map the Ganges but also the instruments that I've made to study, say, the Charles River mm-hmm. in Boston, as well as the Mississippi in the larger Atchafalaya Basin, because my romance with rivers and cities really began when I first moved to New Orleans two decades ago. Okay. And so I've been working on this kind of history of instruments and mapping um, for quite some time, and so I'm excited to also finish this kind of smaller book that looks at the prosthetics and the the subjectivity of measurement more generally. So those are, I would say, kind of finishing the building of a republic of villages with the exhibition and then doing this kind of smaller book on instruments and measure more generally. Yeah, thank you very much for being here with me today and for the lecture on Monday. And good luck with your research and projects in Thanks the future. This podcast was produced by Columbia GSAP. You can find more information about the school on our website at arc.columbia.edu.